Hello and welcome. My name is Jill Martin, the host of the Morning Bell podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Astrid Schult. Astrid's debut YA novel, Four Dead Queens, is an international bestseller. Her second novel, The Vanishing Deep, will be released on the 3rd of March 2020 with Alan Unwin and Penguin Random House. In the show, we chat about the Joker, reality TV shows, and more. And for the topic, we talk about moving on and starting another project with all the pressures that the audience might put on a work, especially as a debut author. Thanks. And as always, we hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell podcast. Uh, we are back at the Brunswick Street Bookstore and I am joined by my co-host, Dion Sheldon Collins, who is now an official Morning hey. Bell co-host. I don't have anything clever to say in response to that, but I'm cheering and waving my arms exactly. around. So, How have you been, Dion? How has your week been? Um, <laughs> I, was, I was telling you as we were coming in, it's been a real day, um, but uh, the funny anecdote I will share for the podcast is that I was running uh, late for me which means not aggressively early basically so I got here on time but normally I'm about an hour early yeah and um, it was because I uh, was on the tram and I got nostalgic and decided to listen to the first Morning Bell podcast episode I ever did so I went and I found it and I was listening to it online and I got so caught up in our conversation I missed my stop Oh, brilliant. There you go. Well, that was bad luck for you, but also I know, that speaks good, to the quality of yeah, the conversation. Good endorsement, right, of an episode I was on. I know, so I, I think it's, it's kind of endorsing my own personality and just saying apparently I'm very fun to listen to. Yes, so, you know, apparently. pro tip everyone, go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it only made, I kind of just went a few stops past where I usually do, which meant that I was sort of just I took a different route but because of um, construction around the new train line in the city mm-hmm. uh, the route that I took was cut off by construction and it just ended up being one of those things where unusually hot day I'm running around three streets out of my way for everything and just going <laughs> what is going on yeah, why so, why this day of yeah. all days yeah. Well, there you go. For everybody else in the world that didn't understand any of those tram stops, <laughs> none of those streets, none of those directions, yeah. it's fine. Trust me, listeners, it was a riveting anecdote if you knew what I was talking Absolutely. about. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's good to have you, Dion, it's as always. It's good to be here. We have a guest, as we usually do. Astrid, how are you going? How's your week been? Very well, thank you. I It's been a, a good week. I always have to think what I've actually been doing because right, it's such yep. a blur sometimes. But I've done some really interesting things in the past mm-hmm. week. A highlight for me was a screenwriting for authors uh, course that I did at yeah. the Wheeler Centre. So oh, that brilliant. was on Sunday and it's something I've always been interested in. Yep. I used to work in film. And I'm hoping that one day maybe one of my books will be turned into a yeah, film or TV yeah, yeah. series. So it was good to learn the differences between script writing and sure. novel writing and, you know, where they overlap. And then, yeah, I've just been writing both on my second book, been finishing up some edits for that and working on what hopefully will be my third book. Ooh, mm. interesting. Yes. Was that go. with uh, Writers Victoria, the screenwriting workshop? Oh, yes, so yes, funny. it was. I was like, why does that sound familiar? That was one of ours that we were writing. Right. <laughs> I think I thought that was just a snide plug you just did there. No, no, no. And you were it like, was, Writers Vic. I know that it sounds like I was like, oh, I'd better get in a good word for Writers Vic here. But I was also genuinely like, no, I'm pretty sure that was us, yeah. wasn't I? I want to check yes. that. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I thought I saw some buzz about that on yeah, Twitter yeah. as well. So fantastic. There you go. Well, here we go. If we want to go with this tr- tram anecdote, yeah. <laughs> at what point, and this is, uh, do you take public transport at all, Astrid? Are you a public I transporter? Do. I, I am notoriously bad at 
taking trams. I don't understand right. trams. I expect trams to work like trains, <laughs> whereas, know. you know, they all go in the same, same direction. direction. You know, so you, you get on the stop, you know where you're going. Yeah, so, they stop at the same places. It's yes. all fairly regular. No one, like, runs to grab a tram. Um, yeah, I know. So here's the thing about trams. <laughs> at what point do you think a tram becomes uncomfortable to be in? What is your max capacity amount of people? Is it when you don't have to hold on to anything and the sandwich of humans can just keep you standing upright? At which point? I think it was more off? of a sardine can than a sandwich. Oh, I like it. Yes, it is. Um, Astrid, feel free to. I took over that one. I mean, depending on the weather, I guess. Okay. It, I think Ooh. there's a few conditions you have to take into consideration. Yes. Is it stinking hot? Yep. Is it stinking? Yep. Uh, yeah, or maybe the, the extra bodies are good. Maybe you need the extra body warmth. Maybe, maybe yeah. it's, you know, in the middle of winter. So I think it would depend for okay. me. There you go. Dion? I, uh, for me, there's a disjoint between what I actually like and what I will actually put up with. So, ah, okay. um, so I don't like uh, being crowded in. I don't like being up in people's personal spaces. Yep. So I'm pretty much only comfortable in a tram if I can uh, sit down or if... Um, if there's standing room, but there's plenty of space between me and I can just hold a rail or something. But I often get caught um, in peak hour trams when I am just squashed in with a huge crowd of people mm. and it's it's really uncomfortable and I often like sort of hurt my shoulder trying to hold on to something yes. because the railings mm. are all very awkwardly placed. So, yeah. and particular types of trams as well, like yeah. the older ones aren't as accessible as the newer ones, yep. but the newer ones have like no room. Yeah. So uh, there's lots of awkward angles and things. So it depends on the tram, the weather, as you say, and the time of day. Yeah. But um, I will pretty much like, if I can fit on the tram, I will get You'll on it. You'll do it. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't mind the human centipede. Like it genuinely doesn't bother me that much. Mm. Though I don't like to be the person pushing into someone else's personal space. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I don't mind people doing that to me because I'm like, whatever. But if I'm doing it, then I'm like, I'm very self-conscious. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to, no. Um, But today was interesting because I had one of those sardine moments. Um, And uh, I think there is a level of if the tram is packed, and I did this a few times, I just look at the tram arriving. I see the... The mass of humans, (laughs) just all like one giant cement block, you know, perfectly uh, square or rectangle as it was. Um, And I'll just go, no, and I'll just walk. (laughs) Yeah. Often I do that. I just prefer to walk than the the tram journey. My tram yesterday, uh, no one had any choice but to walk. Um, This was on the way into work. So it was time of day when everyone's commuting. The tram was really full. Uh, When I turned up, there was already a crowd of people waiting, even more so than usual. And I'm only like kind of a few stops along on my line. Um, And uh, so the tram was running quite late. And then when it turned up, uh, it was already stuffed full and there were heaps of people trying Mm. to get on. And then it got halfway into (laughs) the... the city and they just uh stopped and said everyone get out there'll be another tram in half an hour um just completely stopped running no idea why i don't know if it was like there was construction or if it was a planned thing or Or maybe they just didn't like yeah sometimes i think they just go you know what we hate the people who use our services let's just punish them for taking our public transport (laughs) i agree and so everyone just got out and i don't think anybody went to the tram stop and tried to wait for that everyone just walked so as part of this like weird crowd of people just like making the 40 minute walk into the city en masse together it was funny though because i ran into someone i knew and we ended up just walking into work together oh that's lovely (laughs) 
Yeah, so and it was okay day for it too, but I, I've had that happen to me in like, you know, 40 degree weather Oof. and that sort of thing. It's ridiculous. Mm. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad you stuck around yeah. these many episodes. Heavy literary talk yeah, here at the Morning yeah. Bell Podcast as we contribute to the next tram yeah. section. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I had a chat with uh, Mark Smith uh, mm-hmm. over at uh, the Australian Show Story Festival recently. And Mark's lovely and he's been on the podcast and we hope to have him again. But I was chatting to him about the First Time podcast mm. uh, hosted by Kate Mildenhall um, and Catherine Collette. And I love that podcast. I think it's brilliant and I enjoy listening to it. And I'm very self-conscious uh, because whenever I tell people, I'm like, you should come on to my podcast. Mm. It's not as good <laughs> as the First Time podcast, but you should still come. Um, and I realize it's because we're very, very, very casual. Mm. We, we really... The literary talk aspect of us is like part writers complain about things they hate <laughs> and like occasionally talk about literature. Yeah. But thank you, Astrid, for joining us. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to be here. Now that I'm here, good. we may be as good as the as true. other podcasts. It's true. So. We'll get all the lit crowd now that you're <laughs> here. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm supposed to be bringing networks. No one told me that. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, let's move on to the media section, Mm. shall we? And Astrid, why don't you start us off? What have you been watching, reading, wanting to talk about? Well, I recently saw Joker, the film, uh, the controversial film. (laughs) Yes. I had read a lot about the controversy, and I usually tend to steer away from controversy, or I try and make my own opinion. So I decided I will make my own opinion, and I will go and see it. It is a very well-made film, yeah. but is incredibly disturbing yeah. and uncomfortable to yeah. watch. I, I don't know that I could say I enjoyed the experience because I don't think it's an experience you should enjoy. Yes. And if you do enjoy it, that concerns me slightly yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. not at all hopeful. Yep. It's not... I mean, it's entertaining in a sense that it's well-made, but it's, it's not cinema. a joyful yeah. experience by any sure. means. So I saw that um, and I've been watching a lot of reality TV. I will admit I am one of those people <laughs> no who judgment on this podcast. reality TV. Absolutely. The Block is a favourite of oh, mine. Yeah. So I've been Specifically watching... Specifically which block? Sydney? All of Melbourne. them. I, I will watch all of <laughs> wow. them. I, I really That's like dedication. it when it's in Melbourne. Yeah. And yeah, the one in St Kilda at the moment yeah, is yeah, really yeah. interesting. I could never do it myself. Would yep. never want to do it. Having the cameras in your face 24-7, sure, getting up yeah. super early. I mean, mm. we were discussing before we started recording <laughs> yeah. that we're both not morning people. Yeah. So I would never put my hand up for yeah, anything like sure. that. Uh, and I've also just recently, my partner and I finished watching all of The Office. So, ah, yeah. The which US one or the, the UK US? one? Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the thing. He would always say, oh, the UK one's better, but he had never seen the American one. I'm like, you have to watch the American one because I had gotten really into it. Yeah. I was working actually in Wellington at the time. And I needed something to do on sure. the rainy weekends. <laughs> so I re- rented yep. The Office and, and watched, I think, up to season four or five. Sure. And I loved it. And then I didn't, for some reason, just never Finish continued yeah. on. Probably because Steve Carell left and he was one of the reasons I yep. loved it so much. So we started back at the beginning and watched all the way through to the end over probably about two months. And I just, yeah, I love that show. I think it's really fun. Some of it hasn't aged so well (laughs) with like a lot of things uh, with comedy. But yeah, it's mostly just a joyful show and really well written. It's very, very beautiful. Like it's a very fun feeling show. Yeah. And it it sort of 
um, in an era of grim, dark, you know, misery, uh, it, it feels really f- like hopeful and, you know, very positive relationships, I think, that yes. comes out of it. The complete opposite of the Joker experience yeah. that I had. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so I, what um, you need after watching the Joker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, when I came home after the cinema, I'm like, we need to put some comedy on. It, yeah. That was so dark and yeah. and and oppressive yeah. and I just needed something to kind of, you know, I, I do write mm-hmm. about murder mm-hmm. and death and, mm-hmm. you know, d- dark yeah. themes, but I ultimately like hopeful and optimistic sure i have um, a list of comfort shows that i go to whenever Mm. either i've had a bad day or i've just watched something else Mm. that's really dark or been reading a difficult book um those are just the things that i go to and even if i've seen them a million times i will re-watch a favorite episode because it's just a guaranteed pick me up and i think it's so important to have those stories what are some of your comfort Oh, well, um, Shit's Creek. I'm not ah, swearing Joel. Ah, yeah, so that's yeah, the name yeah, of the yeah. show. <laughs> that's right. I know it. Yep. Yeah, um, that's very fun. Um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Oh, Love um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. Um, uh, Dairy Girls, which is an, a oh, yes. newer one. Um, the second season just aired, so it's been around for a little while, but I only just discovered that, and I really loved that. Yeah. Um, those are the three top three that spring to mind, um, but I also have other shows that are less overtly comedic but still comfort shows, and Joel is probably going to guess where I'm about to go with this. Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency is one of those. I always have to mention that show. Um, But I was having a conversation with some friends recently um, who also love that show about um, how important it is for us to have uh, hope and optimism even in dark stories. Mm. So you mentioned grimdark before, Joel, and I think that this rise of grimdark stories, while there is a place for those, I think they often lose sight of what tragedy and darkness is actually meant to be about which is a counterbalance counterbalance and a Mm. form of catharsis and often the really well told tragic stories or difficult stories are ones that have uh, threads of hope and optimism or end on a Mm. hopeful note or has some kind of comedic subplot like it is about the balance so for me those are the shows that I really enjoy the ones that might have some like crime shows for example um might have a really dark crime story going on, but they'll have these characters who have great banter or who manage to maintain an optimistic outlook despite what they're dealing with. So those are the stories I really enjoy. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, grimdark and just really sad, oppressive stories Mm. are difficult to balance if if it's not punctuated by something. Either Mm. it's hopefulness or humor or, you know, whatever. Like I was, I love Trainspotting. I think it's one of Mm. my favorite films. Not so much because of the subject matter, but because of how it's told and right. um, the way they infuse humor. And I think the sequel, T2, is brilliant because it, it sort of ups the humor level. Um, but yeah, it, it does get a bit old, though, when you just get bombarded by sadness all yeah. the time. And I think we're doing that a lot more in film and in media. Um Maybe it's a little bit of navel-gazing just because of where we're at it's in society and we're a little bit more contemplative and when you contemplate on things that are a bit wrong, maybe your fiction tends to mirror that kind of thing. I don't know. Astrid, you would probably know more about this than I would, but I've seen um, sort of film criticism about that as well and um, specifically in regards to things like action films Mm. and how a lot of action films now are so... And this isn't an indictment of action films because I enjoy them as much as the next person, but there is kind of this trend in a lot of them to... um, bombard the audience with so much stimuli Mm. um, that it's actually hard to focus on the story and what's happening because there's no kind
kind of rise and fall of action. There's no breathing right. space between things. You're the just, Michael Bay effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If Michael Bay specifically, who I've seen that <laughs> in regards to. Yeah. Um, and so I think in terms of just uh, narrative storytelling, it's often not a great way to actually yeah. get across those points because you're desensitizing the audience Definitely. by just throwing bad thing after bad thing at them with no room in between. Yeah, I, I think there seems to be much more of that. Mm-hmm. I mean... I'm thinking of like John Wick, for example. Oh, yeah. uh, there is very little light and shade mm. with John Wick, and it. I mean, I would the the first one. I would arguably say doesn't have much of a plot. Yes, really at all. And I think it's a shame, and with big blockbuster films, that we are losing plot in in exchange for visual drama. Mm. And, and this is coming from someone who loves visual effects and works yeah, in visual yeah, yeah. effects. Uh, I, I love that side of filmmaking, but I think it has to be in support of a, a story and mm. it has to be, you know, boosting the story to, to the surface, not smothering the story, mm. which I think, unfortunately, it is doing a lot more and it, it's focusing more on these, you know, explosions and these car chases mm. and not so much on the narrative journey that you want to take and making you actually care about the characters because I think that's, I don't know if you guys have had a similar experience where you watch these movies and all this stuff happens, but you just kind of feel numb to it. I'm I'm not even sure if it is because of the desensitization or more the fact that you are not developing your characters. Mm. So you're not caring about what happens to them. So it just kind of washes over you in this wave of visual explosion. It's, It's funny as well because we have, you know, a lot of the rings amazing adaptation mm-hmm. and for me the fellowship of the ring the first one is my favorite yeah mm-hmm. because you have special effects that are grounded so much and uh, they don't rely as much on it and the later films are great still don't get me wrong i love mm-hmm. 2000 and return of the king i think they're brilliant um but the fellowship of the ring has this you know closeness and intimacy that i think was really really cool and then the hobbit movies came along <laughs> you want to open up that one, Joel? Because yeah. that's a whole podcast. Like, yeah, exactly. And we've talked about so much on the podcast, but you know, it was such a shame because the Hobbit, as a story, is very, very intimate. Like, mm. in one sense, the Hobbit should have been more like the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Rather than what it became. And I'm sure that's a whole other discussion. But you know, it is that level of just like constant action, constant ramping mm-hmm. up, no downtime. You know, entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. Mm-hmm. Character journeys, eh, we'll figure it out. There's a really good um, analysis of that uh, by an, a YouTuber who does a lot of pop culture criticism. Um, her name is Lindsay Ellis. Uh, and she did this uh, three-part series um, that was really essentially a series of documentaries, about 40 minutes each, but well worth the time commitment. Um, and I think the first one is called um, uh, The Long Expected Autopsy or something like that. Mm. But if you search Lindsay Ellis and Hobbit, um, you'll find it. And she talks about uh, things like, um, kind of the broader context of um, why The Lord of the Rings was so amazing as storytelling and why The Hobbit uh, wasn't and compares right. them but also looks at it kind of as a piece of art in itself and why certain aspects of the storytelling just didn't work and why um, the tone of it uh, just did not fit the original source material at all because it was this intimate, essentially a children's book yeah, um, mm. with a series of anecdotes that can't really be turned into this, you know, 
epic trilogy. Saga. Multi-epic, yeah. yeah. And I think at one point, it's been a while since I've watched it, so I may be misremembering, but I think she talked about how, in a way, um, uh, you know, the story that was told uh, in Fellowship, was, uh, in Hobbit, was more the Fellowship story and vice, like kind of swapped yes. the tone of Lord of the Rings and Hobbit in a way. Yeah. It, right. Yeah, it's an it's an odd thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Dion, what have you been watching recently? Reading. Um, <laughs> so Dairy Girls was yeah. uh, was my thing. I was uh, rewatching most recently, um, and I also actually, in terms of books, I've been um, I've just started Nick Lowe's Arms Race. Ah, uh, yes. I was on a panel with Nick uh, at the Australian Short Story Festival this weekend, and obviously I'd familiarised myself with his work beforehand, um, especially because I was chairing the panel. <laughs> um, but I hadn't actually uh, had a chance to uh, read Arms Race, mm. and he did a reading from it, and it was such a good reading that I immediately went to the bookstore afterwards and bought it so i'm the ideal audience member (laughs) yeah um and yeah i'm i'm only a little ways into it but he has a really interesting style like it's quite sparse and um he does that thing which uh has to be done well to not annoy me but he's doing it well where there are no speech marks around dialogue um which it's yeah uh the the editor in me is always like oh i just i need the punctuation that i can relate to but um it does work for the kinds of stories that he's telling i think and and yeah, he does this really intriguing mix of kind of like um, a techno, I wouldn't necessarily say techno thriller, but he does a lot of stuff around technology and uh, yeah. privacy and data, but with a speculative bent um, yes. and often in regards to things like um, indigenous Maori culture. And so it's this really interesting meshing of things like um, oral traditions and um, more traditional storytelling with kind of futuristic anxieties. Yeah. And the way he mm. melds them is really interesting. So I'm excited to read more of that. Uh, did you read the story, uh, which is what the anthology uh, collection is named for, Arms Race? Did you I haven't read, read that, that one story? yet, no. Okay. Well, we talked about Arms Race mm. on our panel at the last, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is really funny. It was Mark Smith's choice mm. to, to read Arms Race. Bloody Nick, he just gets so much publicity from us. You know, the, <laughs> the first day I, I met Nick and he was lovely. He's a lovely guy and you should read his stuff. But he, everyone just ended up gushing about Nick on the next day as well when he wasn't there, which is great because it would have been very embarrassing for me being like, oh, Nick, what a writer. Um, but yeah, Arms Race is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and he's working really on his next book as well. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah. I highly suggest reading the actual story, Arms Race. Yeah. It's really good. It's, it's spec thick. It's got some cool tech stuff and just... Great twists all around. Just really good. There you go, Nick. Here's another <laughs> plug for you. Not like you needed it. Fantastic. Um, anything else, Dion? Or has that, has um, that been your... That's been kind of the big thing. I was uh, traveling recently uh, for the National Young Writers Festival, Absolutely, which I'm yeah. involved with. And so that was a very hectic uh, period of travel and lead up to the festival. And I didn't get a lot of time to really kind of read much new stuff or um, watch a lot of TV. And since I've been getting... Since I got back, I've mostly been napping. Sure. <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> but I also did actually, through National Young Writers Festival, um, find a number of authors whose work I'm excited to read more of um quite a few poets did readings mm. that i found really interesting so i bought a few books of poetry um wait you bought books of poetry yeah oh my goodness I, you I just that, revitalized the publishing i am that elusive <laughs> thing someone who spends money on, on poetry, poetry. Books. <laughs> and i mean considering how expensive they are i think that buying one does mean you are making a significant yeah, impact exactly. on the industry Great. and i say that with love i realize that they're, they're expensive because it's a very difficult um uh, industry in which to make Back money pedal, so that yeah that that wasn't me having a go at any poetry publishers. Um, but no, it's uh, 
I think that poetry is one of those things that um, if you love a poet's work, it's really nice to invest in it because you will return to it over and over. And often it is, uh, particularly if it's playing around with formatting, um, it is nice to have a physical copy of it because there's an experience in Mm. reading it tactilely. Well, like Dion, I've had a very similar experience. I haven't been doing much because I've been in the festival world, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, finishing up at the Australian Short Story Festival, doing the events, and that was fun and great and met some lovely authors. Mm -hmm. Didn't really get much time to spend in Mm -hmm. the panels. It was about 10% in each panel, Um, but it it was fantastic. A really good, really good time. I am reading, not a short story, but I'm reading Dune. Or rather, <laughs> uh, definitely not a short story. <laughs> definitely not a short, short story. Finishing Dune. So I've always, I had read Dune when I was very young and I never finished it because I was young and, you know, immature. You don't really understand things. Um, and I never finished Dune. So that's my great big, you know, revelation to the podcast. All those other times when I've talked lovingly about Dune, it's because I never finished it. I feel like Dune is the Ulysses of spec fic it in really that is. everyone yeah. knows of it. No one's read it. Everyone feels guilty <laughs> you know, about the fact they haven't read it. The, the problem is James Joyce's Ulysses is dense and just, <laughs> yeah. just not, you're not going to make your way through it. But Dune is so readable. Like, oh, right. I... Okay. I'm loving it. I'm really enjoying it again. Uh, rediscovering characters that I've read before and loved, um, you know, Duncan Idaho, the coolest swordsman in the world, and just <laughs> oh, so great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Dune's brilliant. I'm really enjoying it, and we'll follow up on the next podcast where Joel reveals another classic that he has read. <laughs> I suppose. Oh, we've all been there. I majored in literature, and I have so many classics I haven't yeah, read. <laughs> fantastic. There was a great uh, line from Nick Brash, uh, the chair of Writers Vic, at a, at a reading event where he said he wanted to do a night like um, readings thing and to get people up to read the ending of classics so that when people walk away from them, they can say, ah, yes, yes, crime and punishment. Let me tell you about that ending. I think it's a fantastic event. I would totally do that. I really like that. You'd have to call it something like spoiler alert. Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. (laughs) Patent pending. I'll tell Nick about that. I'll see. Classic reading spoiler alert. Yeah. Fantastic. There you go. Follow up on that. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, we have time for a topic, I think. <laughs> you mean we didn't take up 45 minutes with Media Watch for once? I know. That's a first. Crazy. Um, and this hits a few uh, points that we've talked about during the year. Um, we often vacillate between um, hard-hitting literary critique <laughs> and also just practical writing advice. Um, and I think this is a bit of both because it's a little bit of writer's soapy, you know, story time of their life and their insecurities. And I think the reason why it's nice to talk about that is just because you get to see inside the head a bit. You get to see how the process is. It's not just Goodreads reviews. There is a lot of work that goes into writing a novel. <laughs> face Astrid pulled when you said Goodreads reviews. Um, uh, Boil down to it. Two star, not my thing, two stars. Um, Let's talk about moving on. (laughs) And the idea of that is you've done a work, you're feeling proud of it, and then you realize, oh, that's right, writing is my career, Mm -hmm. time to move on to something else. Now, you're in the process of finishing up a second novel, Astrid. How are your nerves? How are you feeling? It depends. What day is it today? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, I'm feeling pretty good. I think... I was lucky in the sense that I had written the first draft of my second book, which is called The Vanishing Deep. Mm -hmm. comes out next March with Alan and Unwin. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Bit of a plug. Also in the States, but, you know, seeing we're 
in Australia. Alan and Unwin is the publisher to go to. Uh, So I'd written that back in, uh, goodness, where are we? 2017. Okay. So Four Dead Queens, my debut novel, came out this year. So Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, there's always a a long lead time between writing the book and the book coming out. But I, I actually sold Four Dead Queens at the start of 2017, as well as the second book, which was ah, The Vanishing right. Deep. okay. I sold it on three lines. Yep. Did not know what else was <laughs> going to be happening other than those three lines. Love Is that story. living the dream or living the nightmare, I wonder? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I was pretty terrified that my US editor was going to be like, this is not at all what we imagined yeah. when you gave us those lines. Ooh. But luckily that did not happen. Yeah. So that was all pretty much written before uh, the end of 2017. Sure. And then I did edits last year and yep. then I've been doing edits again. You know, there's always blocks yeah. of time that you're working on it. And, then, right. you know, it goes back to your editor. You don't hear for a while. And then, then you move either back on to what you were working on previously, which was Four Dead Queens, or onto something else. So I guess I'm more having that experience of, okay, I've now published a book. Mm-hmm. Readers have read it. Uh, they have formed an idea of what kind of writer I am, yep. and now what will they want from me next? <laughs> so I didn't really have that with the Vanishing Deep because I'd already written it before Four Day Queens I came right, came yeah, out. Yeah. So that was a really good thing, mm. I think, for me, not having that that terror that you know of expectation of what people will have for the next book. Of course, yeah. now I'm just delayed that process and mm. having that fear now. Uh, so I've. This is the the book that I'm working on now, or my work in progress, is my third attempt at a third book. Interesting. So, yeah, well, I good have. Good things come in threes. Let's hope. <laughs> um, <laughs> I yeah, I've tried a few times to come out up with what I would hope would be the third book published. Sure. I did NaNoWriMo yep. uh, last year, mm-hmm. and I wrote twenty five thousand words of a concept that I had had you know, around in my head for about six months, had pitched it to my US editor. She said it sounded great. Sat down, wrote 25,000 words, didn't like it. Interesting. Didn't think it was the sort of author I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. It was very much going in kind of a action adventure direction. And I just didn't feel like that was the sort of author that I that I wanted to be and Mm. what readers would expect from me after my first two books. So Went back to a, a novel that I'd written a few chapters on when I first pitched uh, The Vanishing Deep mm. and a few other books as the potential second book for um, the initial book deal with uh, with Penguin. Wrote 50,000 words on that. I'm happy with that book. It's, it's got a middle chunk missing, which mm. middles are always the hardest. Yeah. And I stupidly skipped it. I, for me, that doesn't work. I actually have to write oh, chronologically. Right yeah, yeah, because otherwise, I just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I can't figure out the relationships between mm-hmm. the characters, mm-hmm. and I have to force it into this ending sure. that I've predicted. Yeah. So that's still sitting there. But then I, I felt like it just wasn't a big enough concept. I wanted something that was easy to describe in one or mm. two sentences. That was very high concept. Very kind of blockbustery, mainstream, mm. um, speculative fiction, which is what I love to write. Yeah. Mm. And it, it just felt a little quieter. It's still, mm. you know, speculative fiction, still fantasy, sure. all those things. But I 
just didn't feel like it was the right book for my third book. Yeah, yeah. So I started writing another one and that's the one I've been working on and I'm almost at 80,000 words and I believe this will be the one. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed, wood touch, all all the superstitions. Um, You mentioned uh, before, Astrid, that uh, that the the draft that you had for an earlier book wasn't the author that you wanted to be and it also mm. wasn't the author that you felt readers would expect mm. based on your already published work. Um, I'm curious about when you're working on a first draft as opposed to a later draft when you're polishing for an audience, are you writing for yourself first and foremost or for the readers? Ooh, that's a good question. I feel, I, I try not to think too much about reader Mm. expectation yet because I'm just trying to get the characters to be doing the right things that they would choose to do if you know their personality is the way that I've set it up which mind you usually takes me one draft to figure out who all the characters are anyway uh I do keep my editor's voice in mind (laughs) (laughs) and she's always telling me no you you know you can't say that or you have to explain that more Mm. so that's definitely something that's changed from Mm. before I got my my publishing deal I think I ultimately want to write the sort of book that I loved as a teenager. Mm. So I I think it's impossible to keep, you know, readers in general in mind Mm. because everyone has such different opinions and they're going to like different things. And some people will love this character. Other people will love another character. And if you try and keep that too much in your head, you you know, you can never please everybody. So... For me, it's making the story as close to, I guess, the feeling that I have in my head. It's Mm. often a gut feeling Mm. as well that of what sort of book I want this to be, the sort of feelings I want people to to have and go through. But ultimately, it just be an escapist an escapist yeah. novel something that's you know fun and entertaining yeah. but also dark and moody and yeah. all those things. In in terms of reader expectation, yeah, for Dead Queen's debut novel you know, made a big splash. You did very well overseas. Um, and as it always happens, people form expectations around your work, around yes. you, which has changed over the years. These days, the author is often the book. Right. Um, and the next work probably has a bunch of expectations. So The Vanishing Deep, you said you've written this before you, you had your debut out. Yes. Is there a level of freedom there that you just, you're like, well, this is just going to come out. You know, it, it, <laughs> it's done, it's finished. I'm not going to vacillate so much about what this is going to be. Mm. Is there any of that going on in terms of how you're going to present the book? And just in terms of tone, is it mm. similar to your debut? It's similar, but very different, which right. is a cop-out, I guess. Sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, um, it's, you know, it's not a murder mystery, yeah, but there yep. is a mystery element. Yeah. And I think that's something that I am drawn to as a writer. Yeah. I do like something that's going to sure. unravel over time. I do like twists and turns mm-hmm. and I like to keep readers on their toes. Sure. So in that respect, yes, okay. readers will have a similar experience of hopefully gasping out loud mm. and tearing through the pages. It's There's a countdown, like sure. a very yep. tight countdown. It's 24 hours for oh, this book. Yeah. So mm. it's very very tense and yep. very quick uh, paced but the the world that I've built is completely different it's it's set on this planet which is 99% water mm-hmm. where these giant waves 500 years ago completely collapsed uh, the society at the time 
and in this world you can revive people from for the de- from yeah. the dead for 24 hours so mm. that's like the concept yeah uh sounds and really interesting yeah thank you very different from four dead queens yeah, yeah it's yeah, about yeah. two Absolutely. sisters and it's more mm. about their relationship yeah. uh, one of them drowned two years ago and and the main character wants to bring her back to find out a secret yeah uh, that she died hiding so I think there was a freedom in having that book come out. It was accepted by my publisher all before mm-hmm. reviews and reader responses came out for Four Dead Queens. When I got the, the feedback, I was like, oh my goodness, I don't have these elements in this book. And I, you know, are people going to even like this? Yeah. But the hope is that the same kind of writing is there. It's a completely different world, completely different characters and a very different novel. But the things that I'm drawn to as a writer and hopefully what readers were drawn to, I think are still there. It's, it's interesting because I think, and I was having a conversation um, about this uh, with a few people today, actually. <laughs> um, and it was the idea that maybe say 50 years ago, the idea of an author producing a work had nothing to do with what they produced before. Mm. The work was the work. Mm. The author could go off and write Ulysses, and then they could write the next book, which happens to be a specific merman story. And it didn't matter. I haven't matter. read uh, James Joyce's mer- mermaid <laughs> <laughs> story. Where do I find that? Yeah, I know. Exactly. It's in the archives somewhere. I'll dig it out. Uh, James Joyce would be tanning in his grave. Um, but, oh, he wrote some yeah. weird stuff, don't you worry. <laughs> but it's that idea that now we associate an author with a brand. Mm, yes. And a brand is very important mm. for marketing. It's important for publishers. It's very important for bookstores. Is it important for writers? Right. And is there a level of, uh, I, I just kind of want to write what I want to write. Do you feel mm. that, Astrid, when, when you write the next book where you're just like, well, I'm just going to write what I want to write. And let's just hope that my readers and also new readers come mm. with me. Not really. I do feel the author brand. It's something mm. I keep in mind. Yeah. I very much think of being an author as a business. Okay. You know, it, yep. it's, it's a, a career and it's something that, if you want to continue to be published, I think traditionally you have to keep in mind sure. yeah, these yeah, things. Yeah. That said, my editor in the US is amazing, Stacey Barney, shout out. Um, <laughs> and she has said, whatever you want to write, you write. Wow. So yeah, they, yeah. they are not really boxing me into okay. a specific category. She yep. has said to me, you know, we want your name to be the author brand. Yep. That said, I do like certain things and I, I wouldn't all of a sudden decide to write a contemporary fluffy romance yeah, because that's say, just yeah. not the direction my brain goes yeah. and not what I consume a lot of. So I've not tested that theory yeah. of I can write whatever I want to write. How far can I push this? Like would you write a verse literary novel? Yeah. Right. Right. And then would your readers be like, what? I'm not reading that. It probably wouldn't be the same readers. It would be building up a new audience all over again, which Mm. isn't impossible. It has been done. And there are authors who have successfully, not even so much transitioned from one genre Mm. to another, but uh, broadened the scope of what they write enough that they can write in different genres. But they are often writing for different audiences. I'm also interested to see what happens with... um, uh, Susanna Clarke who wrote Jonathan yeah. Strange and Mr. Norrell yeah. um, that book was uh, hugely popular Huge when it came hit. out and it was yeah. also this doorstop of a book it was kind of you know this very 
um, on Trend Debut, and she's written uh, one thing since then, The Ladies of Grace Adieu, a short story collection, but she's about to come out with her second novel ever, mm. um, which is, what, 10, 15 years after Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and I, I feel for her because yeah. I think the pressure that's going to be on it's that huge. follow-up book it's is ridiculous. always going right. to be, there'll either be people who want something completely different because they're like, if you spent this long, we don't want more of the same, or there's going to be people who are like, it's no Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, or it's as good, like, it's going to inevitably be compared to it. So I find that that pressure uh, of the debut and that worrying about what the audience will think and whether you are tapping into the same market or just need to kind of build that audience anew is a really interesting question that changes from writer to writer as well. Yeah, I think what you've touched upon there is very much the problem that you have with sequels Mm. because people will inevitably compare them. So what you have to do is ultimately give them the same but up the stakes, yeah. twist it in some way. And it, and if you look at novels and films that are successful for a sequel, it's usually those things. Mm. It's not giving you something completely different mm. because you are targeting the same readership. So I think even with writing a completely different book 10 to 15 years later, you have to keep in mind mm. what people enjoyed about mm. the first novel and that people will come from enjoying your first one and wanting to enjoy the second one and see some same either style of writing or just something that's the same that they loved about that first thing. But I do think that you can't really separate uh, whether you are writing something different. You know, for example, Lee Bardugo, she's Mm. now got her first adult uh, I was thinking of her earlier when you were talking about the second novel, yeah. Yeah, and she is for sure going to bring across all her YA readers, whether they should or not be reading this adult novel, that's another question. But I think that it's inevitable that you will have your readership follow Mm. you Mm. because, as you're saying the author is now really the brand. The work, it is, yeah. It's not so much about these individual works and the, and the books themselves. It is about the, the person canon and what the they're yeah, yeah. I know Jake Christoph has had to say, say over right. and over, the Nevernight trilogy it's is not, not YA. YA. Please don't read it if you're under 18. <laughs> yeah. But people will still do it because, you know, the brand of Jay is it has such a strong following mm-hmm. um, that people want to read other stuff he's writing. Yeah. And I think, and and it's interesting because I wonder in one sense whether that is specifically a genre problem, whether we as uh, genre readers and writers, or specfic readers and writers in this case, uh, is different to say, for instance, the literary industry. Like Mm. literary writers have a level of freedom to explore Mm. various topics and it can vary quite wildly and there's almost a level of like um, leeway you give to them. You know, I, I guess... There are some exceptions. Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro famously is a, mm. is a literary author who mm. dabbles in spec fic, and then one day he decided to write The Barry Giant, <laughs> which is lit, lit spec fic, I think I would say, but it's very classically, you know, Arthurian, not classically, but Arthurian-based, mm. inverting a lot of tropes and things like that, and that was received mm. with hugely mixed mm. feelings from both the literary crowd and the speculative right. crowd. Mm. Um, and yeah, co- so continuing that conversation... This third novel. Let's talk about this a little bit. Um, This is the one that's coming out that isn't a pre-planned novel. You've got two that came out, uh, or, well, coming out with the second. This third novel, is it different in terms of your thought process? You've written three different versions of it. uh, Well, three different iterations and ideas Mm -hmm. of it. Um, 
do you think that says something about either pressure or just what you're feeling? In pressure. one sense, that is the <laughs> that is the second work, isn't it? Because it's right. it's fresh mm. from being a debut to just yeah creating something brand new. What was the thought process? Let's say in this third iteration. Yeah, uh, it definitely pressure because it's mm. it's the one I have to sell. Yeah, you know, on spec, it's yep. the one that you know, I, I don't have a contract on. Sure, so yeah. I wanted it to be the strongest book that it could be. And yeah, the first story, I didn't like where it was going. The second one I didn't feel was strong enough. And this third one, I, I literally sat down and wrote a list of things that I loved. And there was uh, something in Fort Ed Queens that I really gravitated towards mm. and that I was like, okay, what if I'm focused more on that? And it kind of just unfurled from there. So, I mean, I haven't sold it yet. So, <laughs> you know, fingers crossed it's it's the yeah, one. Yeah. But essentially, I was really thinking about what's going to be the strongest third book for my career mm. and something that I'm going to enjoy writing. And mm. it's been the most fun to write right, out of... Yeah. I mean, I loved writing Forty Queens. That yeah. was mm. super fun as well. But this one picks up on a lot of the things that I really love Sure, that I've being able to you know delve more into and, That's and play really around nice with because it's i think authors so often lose sight of the actual fun side of writing when right. it do, when it does become a business because you are thinking about like what's going to work what's going to sell like your your that pressure can be really consuming so it's really nice that you're actually still enjoying it as a writer like it is a hobby mm. as well yeah definitely i think if you become too cynical about it and you're trying to write to trends or mm. you know you lose that sense of wonder in your writing, it will show up on the page. Mm. Yeah. So I'm hoping because I'm having so much fun, <laughs> my readers are going to have so much yeah. fun when they read it. Yeah. And obviously it's a different process, like digging down into the practicalities of, say, selling this third, third mm-hmm. work. Um, it's a different process for you now to be approaching um, publishers and trying to sell this thing. In terms of your confidence levels, mm-hmm. are you feeling confident that this has has a body you now have a body of work that you can pitch forward you know what's your thought process here i i definitely feel more confident than i did you know as a well as an unpublished author trying to get my work out there uh i think also that i feel this is a very strong idea probably Mm. my most commercial and i already kind of write very commercial (laughs) speculative fiction (laughs) so i think there there's a lot of strengths to this idea that i feel really good about Mm. that said Mm. you know there i think as an author and as a creative you're always you know have that little seed of doubt and you know can i make this better is this good enough yeah that's, I think, what makes you want to keep getting better mm. at this thing because you're not going to just settle on, you know, your first draft or your yeah, first idea. Absolutely. You're going to keep pushing until it's the best that it can be. Yeah. And that's a really important attitude to keep in mind too, I think. That idea that even when you have got some successful publications under your belt, you don't want to start coasting. You want to keep mm. um, getting keeping things fresh, not being complacent. So to um, in some ways that pressure can be a good thing as long as it's not too much because it does force you, well, not even force you, but um, kind of help you to continue pushing forward and making something the best it mm. can be. Definitely. 
I, um, I have a term that I coined, and I don't know if I should trademark this because I don't know if anyone else has ever come up with it. They probably <laughs> have. But I call it page fright, which is uh, basically stage fright for writers. It's when oh. you become so conscious of the audience that you become scared to actually just get up on the stage, i.e. sit down yeah. and write because yeah. you just uh, that becomes uh, the overwhelming thing that occupies, wow. you, occupies you. And you kind of have to tune out the page fright before you can actually concentrate on the work itself mm. and just do the performance essentially i really like yeah that. that's awesome <laughs> you should trade yeah, yeah i that. figured i'd get it uh like on a recording if yeah, i was going yeah. to put it out in the world Brilliant. so everyone's a witness and it's, it also makes sense in you know the blank page yeah a, a lot of people are terrified of the that's blank true, page yeah. the page fight it really works yeah fantastic yeah there we go. <laughs> i'm pleased that went over well fantastic. <laughs> if it hadn't we would have had a recording of my failure as well and i would have asked joel to edit it <laughs> I'd be out like, nah, it's yeah, just no, bad. no, yeah. no you're not allowed back it. on don't the podcast um <laughs> let's talk about that mm. idea right let's talk about audience mm. and goodreads i guess um, I mentioned that at the start, it's only, uh, I guess, symptomatic of the greater thing, which is the idea of conversations. People can have conversations all the time, mm-hmm. anytime on the web about people uh, <laughs> and less about their work. Um, right. And that is a hard thing for writers to pass. Uh, generally speaking, writers, you know, write alone. Uh, they work for a very long time with no external validation and then they put their work out and then boom, everyone's talking about it. Mm. And even worse, no one's talking about it. (laughs) Um, When people do talk about it, when they say comments and then you think to yourself, oh no, my second book doesn't (laughs) have that. Is that a worry? About people commenting Mm. or not commenting? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky because you definitely want there to be discussion about your book and you are so right that you when you said about there's no validation (laughs) it's no wonder that we're just desperate for like a little bit of positivity and someone say yes you know all this hard work is for something good Mm -hmm. and you know we are sensitive there's the whole thing that goodreads is not for authors we should Mm -hmm. not be reading reviews yep I agree to that to a certain extent. But also you can't help yourself. You can't help yeah, yourself and it also is actually relevant to the business side yeah. of things, which is more what I kind of look at Goodreads okay. for mm-hmm. because publishers look at how many ads you have, okay. what the reviews yeah. are, um, you know, uh, foreign rights. They look at mm. it. They look at mm-hmm. what sort of feeling people are having, right. whether it's a positive or whether mm. it's mostly negative yeah. and they might offer based on that if they, yep, you know, yep. are seeing that mm. there's this buzz and hype building. Hopefully so, they read the reviews as well and can pick out if someone's given you a one star, but it's an utterly incoherent <laughs> review. They're like, right. that person was just having a really bad day. <laughs> yeah. We're not going yeah. to judge the book based on that I wanted a story about spiders. This is not a story about <laughs> yeah. spiders one star. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a real mixed bag, yeah. uh, Goodreads. I, I've always said that I wish it was more like Rotten Tomatoes mm. and maybe this is me putting it out there so if yeah. someone hears this is, yeah, I can yeah. copyright it yeah. there should be a place where Book you see yeah. yeah the audience yep. reviews and then you see critical reviews yeah. there yep. needs to be some kind of balance because anyone can write anything it might not have even come out yet mm. I've had that happen yeah. you get reviews or you get usually just star ratings yeah. um, when the book hasn't come out yet uh, so, yeah, it would be good if there was more of a balance because mm. I do think Goodreads is very important, unfortunately, mm. and fortunately in, in the industry, sure. in the business side of mm. things. So we can't just 
pretend it, it's Definitely not important to yeah, authors because yeah. it is important to us. Yeah. Uh, so for the next book, I you know can only hope <laughs> that uh, there's been a few reviews. So thank you to everyone who's written some <laughs> lovely reviews. Actually, even some three-star reviews I really liked. I thought they yeah, were great. Yeah. So, you know, when you get really amazing three-star reviews, yep. you take it. Yeah. Like. <laughs> I always talk about the bell curve in reviewing and often it's mm. the balanced ones that are the most comforting because mm. you realize they're looking at it not as a super fan or a super hater. Right. They're looking at it critically and mm. when they praise you on things, you take that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You know that that's sincere praise All, yeah. because they have no reason to and be... Just complimenting. And maybe the, the that's the weirdness of being a writer, that we look at a five-star review and they're like, Psh, and then move on. Oh, totally. And then we look at a three-star and you say, oh, great. But it's just the way we work, I guess. It's so funny that you said that because I have had five-star reviews mm. and I didn't mention them, did I? Oh, I mentioned yeah. the three-star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so clearly the five-stars mean nothing yeah, to me. Mean zero. Yeah. But um, please, people, I, I do like five-star reviews. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we've got to put a disclaimer there. Astrid is definitely in favor of the five-star yes. reviews. Yes, yes. please post more. Um, so l- let's move into the last bit of the topic. And th- this is more on the practical help mm. other authors, help other emerging writers bit, which is the, you mentioned it earlier, constant improvement now that gets used a lot and people always say it and people say well i'm constantly improving give me one tangible step astrid on (laughs) your the thing that you find the most that has helped you improve not Mm. just be great but improving your writing seeing tangible steps for improvement right i think for me it was figuring out what took me the longest to fix in my okay. edits. Yeah. Mm. So for my first and second books, it's it's always, and my editor, is, editor has said this to me, that I build these very big worlds sure. with these big concepts and I kind of work my way in until I figure out the characters and their motivations. And, and so that can take some time over edits mm. and over different edit mm. letters and over months and, yeah. you know, figuring those things out. And now that I've been told that like I never would have picked that before because sure. I'd written many manuscripts mm. before Four Dead Queens uh, and I didn't know where I was going wrong you know you get a bit of feedback from from publishing houses or agents when you submit but not enough that you can really basically fix that manuscript even if, if it yeah. could have been fixed those other stories I'd written maybe they couldn't yeah so knowing that that was a pitfall that I had in my in my writing, especially in early drafts, I keep that in mind now sure. when I'm drafting anything new. So hopefully that will mean that my first draft is more complete with the characters in mind, with motivations, as well as the big world concepts from the outset, which is my brain always goes to the what mm, if sure, first yeah. and then figures out who's going to be Ooh. in it yeah. um, after that. So I think... Which, I, I mean, at, for an emerging writer or f- for someone who isn't published yet, obviously that's not that helpful because mm. you've got to have someone who can point that out in your writing. It's not often that you can pick sure, that out yeah. yourself. Mm. I think ways that you can figure that out is if you do share your work with a trusted CP, a critique partner, if they're always saying to you, okay, but I'm not really sure how this character is feeling mm. or why they did that, or if they're saying... I know all about your characters, but I can't picture the world. And if you're getting that a lot, then mm. you can kind of start to see a pattern that right. okay. yep. I need to work on my world building. And, you know, that I think having 
because you you want to essentially give yourself the best chance of getting an agent or getting published mm. and that when you're going to be a debut author or haven't had anything published yet means having the strongest manuscript that you can mm. once you have your publisher you can hand in not so polished drafts <laughs> like what yeah. I will be handing in yeah. for the third book will not be what I handed in for four day sure, points. Sure, of course. Mm. Yeah. So I think if you have some external help that someone can basically, they don't have to be a writer. They can just be uh, an, a reader mm. of what they, of the genre that you write. Uh, I think that can help you get closer to having the best manuscript that you mm. yeah. can possibly get before you try and approach an agent or publisher. And you're right, those first impressions are so important. Once you've made the first impression, then you can sort of develop the relationship. Like like with any relationship, really, the first impression is often um, the thing that will kind of determine whether you have a continuing relationship with that person. But mm. then once you're in, you can, uh, you can show your flaws a bit. Right. More. <laughs> That's yeah. so true. That's a really good. That's a really good. Uh, Me introducing myself at parties. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think we're almost out of time. Thank you so much, Astrid, yes, for thank joining you. us. Thank you so much for podcast. having me. It, it was, was lovely to, to have here. you. Um, so tell people where they can follow you on social media. Uh, what have you got coming up? A book, by yes. the sounds of it. Any <laughs> events? Go for it. So I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. My name. Astrid Schultz, so that's A-S-T-R-I-D-S-C-H-O-L-T-E. So it's the same across the board, so it makes it super easy. And yeah, I do have a book coming out called The Vanishing Deep. It is a YA fantasy thriller, and it comes out on the 3rd of March with Alan and Unwin, as well as in the States with Penguin Random House. And I have lots of tour plans next year, so stay tuned or sign up to my newsletter on my website, which is astridschultz.com. And I'll be sure to share more information about that shortly. Brilliant. Uh, Dion, thank you. I don't for, have nearly you. as <laughs> as professional a response to that. You're like, no. <laughs> I'm like, I'm on Twitter as Fifi Fail. That's about it. <laughs> um yeah, no, I uh, I don't have much coming up with festivals just recently behind me. I'm mm-hmm. taking a little bit of a break for the end of the year. I've got a bit of freelance work coming up, but no appearances or anything. So, uh, yeah, quiet end of the year for me. Brilliant. Um, well, you can follow uh, Dianne, obviously, yeah. at Twitter, at Fifi Fail. Yeah. Um, you should just own it. I know. I do <laughs> have to own it. It was, it was... I started it years ago, and it's always been this kind of weird thing of um, it's my professional account, but also I don't want to associate my name with it too much. Yes. And so I tried to sort of have the best of both worlds and ended up with just this really weird professional yeah. account that is just very... It's like it's not. I would say it's unprofessional because I don't post a lot on there. I don't post enough to be unprofessional. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I'm really, I'm really selling my Twitter on. Yeah, yeah, you're really following me after this. I'm actually really intrigued. You're like, yeah. it's not very professional. I'm like, Ooh, I want to see what's yeah. on there. Yeah. I must follow this. Yeah, I've, I've got my own hashtags trending and everything. Brilliant. Um, I do not. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, so that's me for this year, and then I mean, obviously, in coming years, as uh, speculate, but yeah. that's that's a different promo. <laughs> that's a whole other promo. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for joining me. Um, for myself, you can follow me at the Pen of Joel, but I prefer if you listen to more podcasts, which mm-hmm. is at uh, themorningbell.com.au, uh, which is probably how you're listening to this in the first place. <laughs> um, you follow, you can follow, or you follow, who knows, um, <laughs> at spec. 
TechFakeVic, which is the Speculate Twitter. Uh, we had a newsletter coming out, and you should, by now, have got another newsletter, which introduced Dion as Yay. our co-director of the forthcoming Speculate, uh, TBD. I don't think I got that. Am I not on the mailing list? That'd be awkward. <laughs> <laughs> well, by this, by the time this podcast comes okay, out, you good, definitely good. will right, have good. it. <laughs> um, so there you go. Um, as always, uh, I have zero uh, information about myself on my website or on my <laughs> Twitter. Um, I am focusing the last half of the year. Is it half? No, it's less than half. Um, on writing. I'm all done for events this year, so hopefully you'll hear more about actual writing projects from me. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Uh, You've all been wonderful, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Bye-bye.